in to this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. I'm Tyler Vaughn, Sam Dykstra in New York City, the official podcast of minor league baseball on the first one of the month of November of 2020. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. How are you? All right. You? Okay. Okay. It's, uh, you know. it's a big week for, for America and still... Big week? Yeah. I would say coming down, but not really. Big not election really. on Tuesday. The Major League Gold Glove Award winners selected. Big stuff. I know you're all glued to your TV watching uh, Harold Reynolds in the, the gold glove electoral map, I assume. If only it came down to that. That would <laughs> honestly, that would make so much more sense than this year's gold gloves did. I actually would really like a full on like live voting award show like that, where there's just like there's a big board and there's like a, you know, a Steve Kornacki of baseball who's like wandering around like over in the American League West. We're seeing a lot of returns coming in from Anaheim and Seattle right now. I could really push things in favor of uh, Evan White's gold glove candidacy. He won San Diego has decided just not to send in their ballots today. They'll they'll send them out on Thursday. We're not going to be hearing from them for some time. Um, yeah, no, it's all, uh, you know, it was, it was very well-timed election results. That was what, that brings up one thing that I did want to get to, uh, this week, Tyler, and we didn't talk about it, but like, how would, how can we use one of these boards in minor league baseball? Like, how would we do this? Cause I really want to, this to become a thing for us. Would it, I don't like how, how could, what's a way we could use one of these touch screens? We do need to figure that out. We uh, will we'll storyboard some ideas. Those of you who have some of your own, get uh, get in touch, podcast at MILB.com. Um, you know, I feel like there's got to be some sort of dividing line between, uh, you know, people's favorite concession stand items or something. But that would be a lot more than just a two-party system. Like, we'd have to have a lot of different colors. Oh, like, I see you the, know. the way you're taking it. And you're taking uh, it like a building an electoral map. Is that what right? You're exactly. Exactly. Oh, you were just thinking of using the board, not necessarily the map. I'm just thinking about trying to like, how do we put a map on a board and explain minor league baseball that way? Oh, okay. Okay. I'm trying to think I of like, like you and I could certainly do that. Yes, we we could certainly do that. Maybe we that'll be a YouTube series uh, coming up at some point. But the other way I was thinking is like, as transaction season comes up again next year, you know, right around that All Star Game time around June. Uh, at minor league all-star game time uh, around June when guys start to get called up and we can show like where they're going and what right. leagues look like. And we zoom in and these are the top 100 prospects left and we zoom out and then we go to the, the Carolinas, something like that. I don't know. That's, that's what came to mind, but I'm sure there are other ideas out there. I like it. Um, you know, we'll, we'll ruminate on this. We'll think yeah. we'll pour things over. Uh, there's obviously going to be a lot to discuss in the coming months as it pertains to uh, to baseball and all things, and we will be with you throughout here on the show before the show from MILB.com. Again, he's Sam. I'm Tyler. Thanks for tuning in wherever you found us. We are uh, on all of your favorite podcasting services. If you're just coming across us for the first time, uh, you can rate and review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Spotify and everywhere else, and uh, check out the past episodes of the show if you are there or at MILB.com slash podcast. You can give us a rating and a review and a subscription and such and uh, get in touch with the show podcast at MILB.com. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's dive in. There's honestly not a ton for us to cover as of yet um, for the baseball offseason, but we will hit on a couple of topics of things to keep your eyes on for the next few weeks. Obviously, no uh, Arizona Fall League this offseason. There are some international leagues that have started play Uh, the Mexican Pacific winter league, uh, which now goes by Liga Arco. It's a a sponsorship deal, but the the league that, you know, is the Mexican Pacific winter league. Uh, They've gotten started. I believe uh, the league in the, in the Dominican Republic is getting started soon. Um, The DR will ramp up Uh, Puerto Rico. I'm not entirely sure of the uh, Roberto Clemente league there, Um, but you know, Panama and uh, some of the other Latin American countries, Venezuela, I'm not sure what their situation is uh, going into winter ball, but some of those leagues are getting underway, but with no AFL, and of course, with the conclusion of the World Series, it's a very quiet time right now on the, the baseball landscape. And yet there are still things for us to cover. There was uh, some bummer, but not completely unexpected news uh, that came out this week in that the winter meetings have been canceled for 2020. They'll be held virtually. Um, But the in-person event uh, known as the winter meetings, which we talk about every year, is technically a minor league baseball event. There are always so many major league things that go on uh, at the winter meetings. That's technically a minor league baseball hosted and organized event. Uh, That will not happen in 2020. And yet still, there are some things that 
or normally orbit around the winter meetings that will go forward, uh, 40 man roster decisions in the rule five draft for this year. Yeah. So a couple dates to, to still keep in mind here. Uh, November 20th is the date in which organizations have to protect players from the rule five draft if they are eligible. Um, so they have to put them on the 40 man roster. Anybody who's not on the 40 man roster and rule five eligible by November 20th or after November 20th is eligible to be taken. Um, so we'll be seeing a lot of movement in the coming weeks. You're already, already seeing a little bit of that in terms of, um, you know, guys who are on the 60 day IL at the end of the year, uh, getting taken off that, that means they take up 40 man space. There's still going to be a little bit of movement in that way. I don't think we're going to see trades necessarily, at least in a big way. Uh, to clear space, but teams are going to have to clear space because they, they do want to protect their prospects and not lose them uh, in something as easy as the, the rule five draft, the rule five draft itself is going to be held on December 10th. We don't have details on that just yet on how that's going to work. I'm sure it's going to be virtual, just like everything else uh, that was a draft in 2020. Uh, it's actually fairly simple to have virtually. I would think uh, one of the things that always happens at, at the rule five draft is it's just guys sitting at their table, getting up, finding the nearest microphone, saying what their pick is or saying pass and then going back. Now it's going to be, you know, hitting unmute on Zoom and doing it that simply. I mean, I think, I think it's going to be pretty easy. It might even go a little bit quicker this year, which will personally make my head spin, uh, but will be a lot easier for you guys to, to follow at home. So it's unfortunate. It was supposed to be in Dallas this year. Um, speaking personally, that would be the first time I would be at a winter meetings in Dallas. It would have been fascinating given the where the sport is right now uh, in terms of transactions. That's what we tend to think about with the winter meetings is that's when trades go down. That's sometimes when free agent signings go down because everybody's in the same space. That's not going to happen now. So we're not going to see those transactions centered around that. And we still don't know what the sport is technically going to look like in 2021. So as teams are trying to figure out you know, should we go acquire a bat? We still we don't know if the NL is going to have a DH. So should National League teams go out and get DH only types? We don't know, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, in terms of having a bulk of moves in, around those December dates, that's probably not going to happen. But as always, we have the Rule 5 draft, which provides a decent amount of excitement uh, for us minor league followers. So some stuff to still keep your eye on as we uh, head toward the offseason in 2020, now into the offseason in 2020. And uh, as we did point out and kind of in a jocular manner, but um, yeah, Major League Gold Glove Awards announced last night. Uh, so, of course, the biggest winner of election night, the Colorado Rockies third baseman, Nolan Arenado, eighth straight <laughs> gold glove to begin his career. That's the most to start a career for a third baseman. Um, for- Are you endorsing a Colorado <laughs> incumbent there, there Tyler? <laughs> That is one incumbent in Colorado that I would very much, very heartily <laughs> endorse. Um, but we did see uh, some really cool selections, guys that we have been, uh, you know, kind of in touch with over their uh, rises to the uh, the major league ranks in recent years. And uh, some guys, of course, who have been a little bit more entrenched in uh, at the big leagues over the last, uh, I don't know, half decade or decade or so. But how about somebody like Evan White wins a gold glove? Evan White, who we talked about in – Every single prospect, primer, organization, all-stars, it feels like, about just how good his defensive tool was. He wins a gold glove at first base as a rookie for the Seattle Mariners. Um, Javier Baez, a guy who just continues to be an absolute phenom uh, at shortstop. He grabs one, uh, kind of a a middle-of-his-career guy. Another early career guy who we used to love on the site, Tyler O'Neill of the St. Louis Cardinals, who's had his bumps uh, in some major league time over the, the last couple of seasons, but he wins a gold glove. Luis Robert. Captures a gold glove as a rookie. He became, I believe I read, the first White Sox outfielder since like 1971 to win a gold glove. And he does so in his rookie year, which is incredible. Trent Grisham of the San Diego Padres goes from making that uh, really tough play on the air in the playoffs last year uh, for the Brewers to winning a gold glove with the Padres the following year. And then one award very close to my heart and not Nolan Arenado, but uh, Alex Gordon who was a a legend at the University of Nebraska when I was in school there and retired this year before the end of the season, he announced his retirement. He goes out on a gold glove, his eighth 
of his major league career, uh, finishes his career with four consecutive gold gloves, which I found very cool. Congrats to Gordo on a great career uh, and a, a gold glove to end on and a World Series ring to take with him. Um, but there are some really interesting inclusions uh, in this group, but that's not what we're going to talk about anyway. What we are going to talk about is uh, – there obviously with no minor league season this year, we did not have those defensive awards, but we saw some guys in this conversation who have been dudes who have won those awards. Roberto Perez, the catcher for Cleveland wins the, uh, the American league gold glove at that position. Evan white. We talk about, um, had he been up in the major league level a little bit earlier, tough that he plays in the national league, but key Brian Hayes has been a defensive phenom in his time in the minor leagues. Um, Sam, if there are some standout guys, right there who you may have had an eye on in this capacity. If we had had a minor league season in 2020, um, removing somebody like Evan white from the conversation, obviously, because he uh, has already made his way up. Um, who would have been in that conversation for you this year? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned key Brian Hayes. That's where we have to start here, obviously at being at third base. And uh, I've almost been flabbergasted at his minor league career. And the fact that he hasn't been a shortstop because everybody speaks so well about his, uh, play at third and and the answer I always get is that if he's so good at there why would we ever move him um, so yeah key Brian Hayes and he, he showed that in his brief time in Pittsburgh uh, during the season so there's no reason to think that he can't win that award next year if he's able to get 140 plus games at the hot corner for the Pirates um, so he, he would be my number one pick but my number two pick, who we also got to see a little bit of, which was also really fun to see in the postseason, was Christian Pache uh, of the Atlanta Braves. Pache, lots of speed, lots of ability to cover ground, really, really good arm. Uh, there were a couple of times where he got tested and didn't quite work, but it was always a battle. It was always close if a guy, if he got the ball in right center during the postseason and somebody was trying to go second to third. Uh, it, it was at least close. I remember Bookie Betts tried that on him at, at one point. Uh, and the other thing I like about Pache in that series was Texas has a really big outfield, especially in center field. Um, so seeing, seeing him cover that amount of ground attempt to make some, some catches over that fence was exciting. And, and I think the Braves are going to get again, a hundred plus games of that at a Pache next year. Uh, he's somebody who may not make spectacular plays, but he's going to cover so much ground that the analytics are going to smile on him. Now the 2020 gold gloves, were only based on analytics. I think it they came from uh, a Sabre stat, DPI, I believe. Um, so there were no votes. There were no votes this year. It, that was in part because every uh, team only played teams within their division and within their geographic location. So if you were a team in the AL East, you didn't get to see a team in the AL West. So it was difficult for you to vote on that award. Um, again, hopefully next year we, we are back to something normal and that teams are able to travel and see more teams and we, we get votes again. But uh, I think Pache is going to get smiled on by analytics and anybody who watches him play puts at least a 70 on his glove, if not an 80. Um, so he's definitely up there. Uh, Nick Madrigal at second base is certainly a possibility uh, at, at winning the award at some point. Um, you know, the just because, you know, again, second base, we don't necessarily think of as being a great defensive position because it's usually just failed shortstops. Um, but he seems to have pretty good range there. He has the arm for second base in so much as that matters at that position. I, I think that could work out. He's still technically a prospect will still be at, technically able to win rookie of the year next year. Uh, should he give that a push? Um, so those are kind of three names I would really circle right now. Am I missing anybody, Tyler? No, I think those are probably the ones to keep the closest eye on. Um, it's always so difficult to, to project that tool going toward a major league career because you just don't know how uh, defensive skills are going to translate. But it always seems like if you're a great defensive player in the minor leagues, the chances are that you hold on to that skill set uh, climbing toward the major leagues because it's just something that is so much more of a – I feel like you can teach more of uh, the hitting components that you need to be successful at the major league level. If you're a bad fielder, you're just generally a bad fielder. I mean, you can be made into an adequate fielder, but you rarely see guys, and oddly enough, one guy who may be an exception to this, Nolan Arenado, who I know uh, when he was coming up, a lot of people said, you know, he's kind of plotting, doesn't have great reactions. We don't know what kind of major league defender he will be. Um, and that obviously has turned himself into one of the greatest third basemen ever played. But um, if you're a guy who has a, a good defensive skill set, Evan White's the perfect example. That's yep. going to carry you a very long way. 
Yeah, and and the funny thing about Evan White is that he reminded me a lot of Cody Bellinger, what people were saying about yeah. him at first base. And again, I go back to what I said about Brian Hayes, about if he's so good at this position, why don't we try to move him up the middle, get him a little more time at a premium position? It could still happen for the Pirates. I don't think it's going to happen for him. He's just been playing third base for so long. But with Cody Bellinger, everybody said he's incredibly athletic at first base. He's going to win gold gloves there. And guess what? They moved him to center field, and now he's – won an MVP in the outfield. Um, so uh, the great thing about the minor leagues is that it's a place to still experiment with positions. Uh, we're going to hear this uh, coming up in the interview with Aaron Sabato of the Minnesota twins organization. Every draft th- thing I saw from him going into the draft that he's stuck at first base, but talking to him about his time at instructs, he played a lot of first base. Yes, but they moved him around the infield just to get a sense of it. Um, so that's still technically on the table for him. We'll see how that works out. He actually played shortstop in high school. Um, so maybe there's a chance he moves over to third base. The The Tigers are certainly trying that now with Spencer Torkelson as well, another 2020 first rounder. Um, so y- y- people can grow that tool as much as we think they are set in stone in the minor leagues. And the guys who start out really good are always going to be that way. And, and usually they are, but it, it is a tool that can grow just as much as any other one. Um, one name I, I do want to throw out, funny enough, it's funny that I forgot this, but I do want to point out his defense as well, is Adley Rutschman. Yeah. Um, part of the reason why we think he's such a great prospect and why he was the first overall pick in 2019 is because he is such a gifted uh, catching prospect on the defensive side, not just on the offensive side. Uh, really good switch hitter, obviously, but I think he was calling his own games in college, which is very rare. Uh, everybody loved to work with him when he was climbing his way up through the Orioles system. Um, got a lot of experience with that at Instructs and at the alternate site roster this summer. Uh, would not be surprised at all if Adley Rutschman almost has a Yadier Molina-esque gold glove run uh, because of what he's able to do behind the dish. So that'll uh, wrap up a brief opening segment on this week's episode of the show before the show. We gave you like an hour and 45 minutes last week. Don't give us any guff. <laughs> maybe they're we, happy i don't know that could be that could be, that could be. Uh, but we do have a a couple of conversations coming up sam's going to catch up with benjamin hill in a little while uh as well as the eighth ranked prospect in the minnesota twins organization aaron sabato sam tells about that that's coming up uh just around the bend yeah so uh, beyond just the defensive uh questions that i just brought up about it uh sabato we, we get into uh you know what it's like going through instructs right now and this is basically his pro debut is is to work out at instructs what is that like uh, how does he introduce himself to, to the organization and what is he focused on as somebody who didn't get to show anything at the alternate site roster? Um, we also get into you know what he was able to do at UNC, what he could have done at UNC if he had an even longer sophomore season. He was eligible as a uh, sophomore this year for the draft uh, and, and so many more things, including his favorite home run, all that. Stuff. So you, you'll hear it here coming up. Here's me with Aaron Sabat. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Having your own home is awesome, but it's also a lot of work. The good news? Finding help for your projects is easier than ever. Introducing Angie, the app that puts all your home care needs at your fingertips. Need a pro to fix that emergency leak? Maybe find someone to build a deck or even set your seasonal tasks on autopilot. Angie can handle all that and more. Expert pros, hundreds of home projects, clear pricing, and the easiest way to book and pay in seconds. This is Angie, your home for everything home. Download the app today. 
Well, we're very happy this week to be joined on the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show, by 27th overall pick this year, former UNC slugger, now Minnesota Twins prospect, Aaron Sabato. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, no, this is great. So we wanted to have you on this week just to kind of get a flavor of somebody who's been through instructs, and this is your first real taste of pro ball. So take us through what you went through at instructs with Minnesota and uh, what your experience was like down there. Uh, yeah, I mean, this was obviously, yeah, like, like you mentioned, my, my first taste of, of pro ball. Um, and I mean, it, it was awesome. I mean, instructs was, you know, since that was the first time that I had played um, organized baseball because college got shut down since March. Um, but instructs was just, I mean, it was, it was a time to get out there, get a feel again of, of playing live playing live games and, and inner squads and hitting every day, fielding every day, um, throwing, and just a way of, of getting your body back into just playing baseball again. And, and I think, you know, it, it was really fun. And the, the Twins organization, everybody around was, was unbelievable. And they made me fit in and made me feel like I was at home from the second that I got there being the, being the new guy. Um, but it, it was, it was awesome. I mean, they, they had a really good schedule, so it was four days a week. We would we would scrimmage. We would scrimmage uh, Monday, Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, um, and then we were lifting every other day, fielding every other day. Um, and you know, they, they did a really good job of, of having it scheduled out and the days, and making sure that you know, really the only off time was was in the afternoon, and it was baseball all day, which was something I'm, I, I was new going from college. Usually, I got classes for four hours in the morning, but now it's all baseball. And so I, I loved it. I really, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and I, and I just can't wait to, to keep playing for, for this organization. Yeah. And what was your biggest takeaway from instructs? Like you said, this is the first time you, baseball is your job now. And it's the only thing you have to mm-hmm. do. And your first time measuring yourself up against guys who you're going to be playing with and kind of in a weird way, compete, competing with to climb the Minnesota mm-hmm. ladder. Um, so what did you take away from that experience? Yeah, I mean, I I just think the biggest thing is, you know, you you go there and obviously, like you said, like yeah, you're competing against all the other guys, but for me, you know, that that's that's all obviously inner inner competition stuff. Um, but you you want to go down there, you want to, you know, you you don't want to be that guy that everybody excludes from. And when you're hanging out, like you know, I, I went down there and I made it a goal to make friends with everybody. Um, all the guys were unbelievable, and then you go about doing your business, and then because you want to be friendly, friendly with all those guys. Cause like you, you can learn from all those guys. Those are guys that have been, have been through instructs before have been through full seasons. And so it was be, being able to pick their brains of, of how things were going. Yeah. Obviously I'm competing against them. And when it comes down to it, you know, you want to outwork them and you, and, and you know, you want to surpass them. Um, but, but you also want to learn from those guys. You want to know what works, what doesn't work. Um, how do the seasons go? What, what's it like on your body? What's it like mentally? Um, are there good things to prepare for? How do you, how have you approached instructs, you know, the years prior? And so you take things like that for guys that have been through it. Um, yeah, you th- but you know, yeah, I no. mean, that's all, that's what I would say about it. Gotcha. No, sorry to interrupt you there, but you're talking about a lot of off the field stuff there. Um, in terms of on the, the field stuff, again, measuring yourself up and, um, trying to see how, things are or where you were at now as you get your career going, where was your focus as you were getting at bats and scrimmages or getting defensive reps? Like what were you most focused on in those weeks down at Fort Myers? Uh, yeah. My, my most focus was, was just playing, playing my game of, you know, swinging at strikes, taking balls and, and, and showing off my power. Um, and so for me, well, what I really got to show while I was down there, on the field was that I could play multiple positions. I mean, in the scrimmages, I, I played first base, but um, when we took practice and stuff, I showed that I can compete at first. They, they made us play first, second, third, and short there. And I showed that I can play all those positions and move just as well as some of the other guys. And, and I, I got complimented on it, and I, and, and I feel it great. I, I looked great um, doing it. And I think that was what, something that I had got knocked for. And I think showing that and having the ability – to play different positions only increases, you know, my chances of moving up and, and my, and the potential like of my bat that it can play multiple positions. 
Um, so going there and, and proving that I, I can compete and play with those guys and that I definitely deserve to be up there with, with the top prospects in the organizations. Um, and so just, just little things like that. that. That's interesting that you talk about moving around the infield because I know in high school you were a shortstop and you moved pretty quick to first base at, at UNC. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, where did you feel most comfortable on the infield outside of first base? Yeah, I mean, growing up playing shortstop, like you said, I mean, I, I knew eventually I was going to switch. Um, but for me, the most comfortable, honestly, I, I know it sounds cheesy, but it's just it's just being an infielder. Um, playing shortstop and moving over to, to, to first, um, it's, 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 it's like third. And footwork's obviously a tiny bit different, but I grew up playing all those positions. And whether, whether it's first, second, short, or third, wherever they put me, I, I know it's probably going to be corners, if anything. I, I know I can play that those positions at a high level and I'm only going to get better and better from here. Oh, very cool. And, uh, you haven't officially played a minor league baseball game. I get that, but have you had a welcome to pro ball moment yet? Something that was like, especially eye opening, maybe seeing high velocity, maybe something in BP or, or in the field, as you mentioned, uh, what was that first really welcome to pro ball moment for you? Yeah, I'd see, I just think the welcome to, I mean, are you talking about in terms of like struggling and things like that? No, just in terms of it could be anything. It could be something that was eye-opening in terms of, you know, like you mentioned before, being a guy who baseball is your job now. Like wh- when did you really yeah. feel settled in as a pro ball player and all of that encompasses, I guess? I, I would say I think like the first time I stepped on the field, honestly, and, you know, and, and now you're meeting kids that are five, six years older than me and kids that are five, six years younger than me. And realizing that we're all in the same organization, playing to the same positions, doing the same things, and competing against each other from all around the world. And I think that was probably the first time that I really realized that, like, you know, you get there and, and, and you see all these kids and you see that, you know, they're, they're, all, they're all trying to go for the same goal to make it to the big leagues. And I think that was probably the first time that I realized, you know, like, okay, like, like this is pro ball. Like, this is what it's about. Very cool. Well, we'll, we'll jump back a couple steps here. Um, you, I mentioned before your time in high school, playing in a Connecticut high school in Brunswick. Uh, you you went undrafted coming out of high school. I know you got a couple pro looks there, but you chose to go to UNC. Got off to a little bit of a slow start, but really turned things around there in 2019 and ended up with an OPS above 1,000. You hit 18 homers in 64 games that freshman year. Uh, you know, Given all that followed and the fact that you only got 19 games uh, this spring as a draft eligible sophomore, how big was that 2019 season for you putting yourself on, on the map, both as somebody who went undrafted uh, the year before and eventually turned into a first round pick? Um, yeah. I mean, looking back at it now, obviously it was, it was huge. Um, and I think it's just one of those things like you try not, you try not to count like during the season you try not to think like oh if I have a great year you know like that'll set me up being like knowing that I was a sophomore sophomore eligible draft guy um and and you try not to think that way but obviously looking back at it like it was huge but you know you go out there every day you want to compete and you want to show that you're the best player on the field and so for me that's what I wanted to do and I knew that if I stuck to my game and and kept my mindset and kept my mind and mentality even keeled and and keep my confidence up that I knew I, I could end up you know, where I, where I, where I ended up. Um, and it's just all of just trusting the process and realizing that it's a long season. Um, but if you keep working and, and you, and you keep the right mindset that ultimately, you know, my, my talent was going to prevail and, and I was going to, although I had a little, little struggles here and there, my, like I, I was going to, I was going to end up where I wanted to in the end. Yeah. And when you say about trusting the process, obviously that's a big buzz phrase now in sports, but what was that process? What do you feel like got the most out of your town, especially your power, which as any scout will tell you is plus plus potential. Um, you know, what did you have to do to really unlock that at the college level? Um, I just had to be more disciplined. Um, when I first got to college, it was a lot of like, I, I wanted to do, obviously you want to do damage on every ball, but I just got over anxious. I was swinging at pitches. I really didn't want, I really shouldn't have. Um, and then I was maybe too selective on, on on certain pitches in the zone, you know, because I was overthinking a lot of things. And I think once I became more relaxed and, and really started honing in on balls that I know I could do damage on with on high, really, really high percentages that, 
my power ultimately came out. I was swinging at better pitches and I was being able to put my swing on all the pitches that I wanted to and lay off the ones that I didn't. And I think that's what, what what really separated me um, in my freshman season, because I knew that if I could get my A swing off, you know, it's, it's really, and, and, and show my power, like you said, like they said, my power being plus plus that it's going to separate me when, when I'm, when, when I'm really on. And speaking about being really on, you know, just to go over these numbers for people at home who might not be aware of them, you got 19 games this year with UNC before things shut down. You hit seven homers. You finished with a line of 292, 478, 708. Obviously really good across the board. 19 games, not a huge sample, but that's pretty much in line with what you did as a freshman. Maybe some little improvements here and there. What do you feel like you were capable of doing this spring if you were able to get 60-plus games like you did in 2019? I mean, I think I was hitting easily. I mean, average-wise, you know, obviously I think well above 330, 350. Um, Probably would hit 25-plus homers. And I think I would have walked, honestly, 80, 75 to 80 times. I mean, I had – I think it was something like close to 30 walks without being intentionally walked. I think maybe I got intentionally walked one time. Um, I was walking, I think, because uh, somebody asked me about it the other day, I think I was walking at one point 10 times in the last two series that we, that we played. And I was kind of like you said, what helped me my freshman year. Like I, I was becoming way more, way more disciplined. And it was my second year now at college in college baseball. And I was really becoming acclimated of like, okay, like I, I know myself way, way better now this year. And, and I can keep going. And, and honestly, I thought, you know, the sky was the limit. Um, and obviously it thinks that it got shut down. Um, but everything happens for a reason. And so I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm blessed that to be, that it, it ended up that way. And that I'm in, honestly, I think the greatest organization um, in major league baseball. Hmm. And, and going into that draft experience, again, knowing that you're a draft eligible sophomore, a little bit of ahead of the curve um, because of your age, but uh what was your thought process going into that? Because everything you mentioned there, putting up potentially a 330, 340 average, uh, hitting 25-plus homers, that could have only increased your stock, but you still did plenty in the year and a half you were given. Did you feel settled, like you'd done enough, or was there any part of you that felt like, hey, maybe I could have gone even higher if I'd given the chance? At least was that your thought process going into June? Yeah, I mean, I knew because I think the one thing that, that held me back a tiny bit um, was the fact that I did um, not play summer ball after my freshman year. Um, and so I think, you know, if I had played summer ball, it would have been different. But honestly, those are obviously, yeah, like those are all what ifs. But I'm sure definitely like if it was a full season and I had done what I knew I was capable of doing, I'm sure it would have been different. Um, and yeah, you think about it a little, but at the end of the day, you know, like I said, like everything happens for a reason. And, and I honestly think like, like the season ended, because of the disease like COVID and everything and that I was meant, you know, to play for the Minnesota twins. And I think God has a plan and, and everything, everything happens. And so I, I couldn't be happy with, with where I'm at and how things ended up. And I'll close the book on your college career by, by just asking about this. I love to ask big power guys about this. Again, you hit 25 homers over 83 games. So there's lots to choose from here, but during your UNC career, what do you remember as your favorite Homer? Um, it was by far the regional against my first regional game ever. Um, we were playing UNC Wilmington and we were down one inning, one run in the bottom of the ninth. And I hit a game tying home run as the first batter of the inning um, to tie up the game in the bottom of the ninth. And we ended up winning in the bottom of the ninth. So I think that was by far my favorite um, collegiate home run. Are you a, a person who goes back and watches your highlights at all? Or do you just li- relive that in your own head? Um. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I definitely, I definitely did it more um, when the season ended. Um, but I think I, I watched a lot of the highlights, honestly, to, to just see, like, you, you know, when you go through times like this, I mean, obviously with all the, the COVID stuff, um, but you want to see what works. You want to know when you get into instructs, like, you want to know, like, okay, this is the first time, you know, you're seeing it in a while. Like, you want to look back at and, and be able to have videos of when you're, when you're having success and be able to see, you know, what you're doing. And so I, I don't say I don't watch them crazy, but I, I mean, I definitely watched them before. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, you talked about 
really feeling like it's a good fit with the twins. And I think you called them the best organization in baseball. They're, they're, they're certainly on a good run uh, getting the playoffs the last couple of years. But one thing that stood out to me when specifically you were drafted is that the twins set the major league record for home runs in a season in 2019. And you are their first mm-hmm. pick after they do that, um, adding even more power to the system. How do you feel like you fit with the twins? Like even in, in the discussions afterwards and now your time in instructs, um, plugging yourself into that system, how do you feel like you fit? Um, yeah, I mean, when you look at it, I think when I got drafted, my agent and they were telling me, you know, there was a couple of teams in baseball that really didn't have um, a first baseman, you know, at, at a really locked position, a locked guy for the first baseman position. And when I looked at it, you know, and now I feel like I can be that guy. And, and now that I'm in the organization, you know, when I went through instruction, all the top, you know, position players and pitching prospects were there. And, you know, there really wasn't a, a, a true set first baseman, you know, besides me. Um, and so when I look at that, I, I, I see, you know, a good opportunity to move up the ranks. And then, and then when you look at, like you said, with the home run stuff and, and the power potential. And, and for me, being that guy of, they want to to swing at strikes and take balls and, and hit balls over hit balls over the wall. I think you know that that's my philosophy and, and what I strive to do up at the plate. Um, being a power guy and and being a power guy and having the same hitting approach and the hitting philosophy that they share, and being you know one of the few first basemen's true first basemen's in the organization at least. I, I think it gives me a real chance to you know to shoot through through the different levels uh, of the organization. And you touched on organizational philosophy there Um, besides defensive versatility. And and you said getting spots all over the infield. Is there any part of you that's changed at least developmentally or in terms of focus since you become a twin twins prospect and and you're under their tutelage now? Um, I don't know. I I don't think any really focus has changed. I mean, you know, when you get down there and they they knew that guys hadn't, hadn't played really played in a while. And it was only five weeks. Um, but it, it was really just, you know, they wanted, when I first got down there, they wanted to learn more about me and, and my process. Being that it was my first time in pro ball and I, I hadn't been guys that had gone through, you know, 60, 70 games or, or a couple full seasons like other guys that were there. And so they really wanted to know what my routine was like hitting, um, throwing-wise, um, and just learning more of what made me get to the get to this level and what makes me feel, you know, ready to play and, and, and ready to practice and certain stuff like that. Um, and I think that for me is was honestly one of the best things to, to be introduced to down there because I got to learn that, you know, like they really care for the routine of, of each individual player and, and what makes, you know, them unique. And when we get down there, you know, they split guys up into the cages of, who kind of has similar routines. And I think that's really special and, and honestly something that's, that really helped me. And uh, we're just coming off the postseason here. The twins, unfortunately got knocked out in the wild card series by the Astros two nothing, but that was your first opportunity to watch a playoff series as a member of the organization. What was it like going through that? And how much were you picturing yourself, you know, in, in the twin cities wearing uh, twins, white, it, in that situation, like, what was it like watching that at home? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's definitely something that's run through my head of, you know, of me thinking about like that. I, I know that I can be that guy standing at first base um, and helping them, you know, try, trying to get to a world series. Um, but then watch it. I mean, down there, you got guys in the organization that have been there for four or five years and they're, they're cheering on not like, not just teammates, but friends. Um, like I believe Alex Kareloff had his first, um, major league debut and all those guys that, that went through the organization with them are, are, were like just so stoked watching the TV, like in, in the cages, stop to watch and look and, and cheer them on. And I think when, you know, being in Pro Bowl and, and realizing that, you know, Hey, like these are the kids that I'm with, but these, like, these are the guys that are cheering on, you know, guys that I, like, you know, you hate to say it, but ultimately like pass them in the organization, but still, rooting for them, cheering for them because they play for the same organization. Um, it, it, something like that is, is honestly truly special. And I think that's what made me so happy to be a part of this organization. Like I said, it's like, you know, when you get to pro ball, you hear, oh, it's, it's really individual. But seeing that and, and 
watching the twins and, and watching guys cheer on each other and cheer on the team, you know, it, it kind of brings back like that, that college baseball feeling. And you mentioned Alex Kirilov and his major league postseason debut, getting that mm. opportunity. I feel like this would normally be a crazy question, but I've asked it of guys and then it's turned around and come true. So there are no crazy questions in 2020. How close to the major to the majors do you feel right now? I know you just got drafted. I know you still haven't played a minor league game. You only have a couple of weeks of instructs under your belt, but anything feels possible in, in baseball now after what we just saw. So how close do you even feel right now? Um, yeah, I, I guess that is a tough one. But honestly, I feel I, I feel that I, I'm I feel that I'm close. Um, honestly, um, I feel that. If I can get out there and, and and start this full season, hopefully next year after spring training, and really show what I'm capable of in uh, full season or however long it is, um, and show that I can play first base at a, at a very very high elite level, um, I think that I, like I said, could have a chance to rise through the ranks really quickly. And the fact that you know they 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 need a first baseman um, now, um, but I, I don't I don't think I'm too far. I think I'm I think I'm right there and. And I know what I'm capable of, and I know that when I get rolling, there's re- there's really no one like me in, in professional baseball. Hmm. And when you do picture that first minor league at bat, you know I'm knocking on wood. Hopefully, full season ball can start up next April like normal, and and we're at a place where that can that can happen. But when you picture that pr- first pro minor league at bat, wherever that's going to be, what are you going to be working through? What are you going to be thinking in that moment, and how's it going to go? Um, yeah, I mean. I mean, I, you, you hope for the best and, you know, confidence comes from preparation. And so I feel like I'm going to be prepared and, I, and I'm going to feel good about it. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully it's a, it's a home run, but I mean, I'm just looking to do damage every time I step up to the plate and if I'm barreling up balls and hitting them hard, you know, I'm going to have, a, I'm going to have a lot of success. Um, and so that, that's, a, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to hit balls hard. I'm trying to hit balls far and, you know, I'm trying to be disciplined up at the plate. So for me, those are the three biggest things. And I think when I and I think when I do that, you know, I'm going to have a, a really long and successful career in professional baseball. Yeah, I, I do appreciate you saying. I hope it's a home run. Sneaking that in there, like it, let's you know, if you're going to dream and shoot for the stars here, let's actually shoot for the stars. So good on that. Yeah. And uh, Aaron, we'll we'll end on this one because this is now officially your first off season ever. Um, what is the plan going to be here for the next few months, knowing? You know, we still don't fully know what spring training is going to look like and all that. Um, but what is your off-season training plan looking like, and where are you hoping to be come spring, ready for that first spring training? Um, I'm just, I'm honestly building off of the instructs. My my body's my body feels incredible. Um, my swing feels great. My fielding feels great. And honestly, it's just going to be maintaining the strength and maintaining how my swing and my body feels, um, and just going through the off-season. And keeping that and keeping, honestly, just mentally feeling this way and hopefully coming to spring, uh, spring training and wherever, wherever I go is where I go. And honestly, just being ready, like you said, for that first at bat and that first pitch, um, whenever it is, even if it's in spring training games and, and even after spring training, it's just being ready and being able to separate myself from day one as soon as I get there. Very cool. Well, Aaron Sabato, number eight prospect in, in the twin system, a first round pick this year out of UNC. Um, you can find Aaron on Twitter for twins fans or any UNC fans who don't follow him already. It's at Sabato Aaron. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. All the best going forward with, with that offseason plan and as we get ready for spring. And uh, I'm sure we'll catch you somewhere down the line. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, I want to begin uh, this week's segment with Ben, who is on the line with us. Hi, Ben. Hello, Sam. Uh, I want to begin this week's segment by thanking you, Ben. I know you didn't actually get to work as a poll worker yesterday, but you did volunteer. You did sit in a waiting area and and try to offer your services. And as a member of New York City, as a member of the borough of Brooklyn, I would just wanted to thank you. How How did that go? Uh, working as a poll worker or your attempts to do that yesterday. Yeah, well, it was one of the more long and boring days I've had in my life, but also kind of interesting just to even though I never even got sent to a poll site just to be, you know, part of the process. Um, You know, I think a lot of people I was feeling engaged, wanted to be part of the process in some way, um, wanted to do some small part to help people vote. So I signed up to be a poll worker, got assigned to standby, 
And you know, I live in Brooklyn, uh, as do you, of course. Um, I got sent to a building in Sunset Park as a standby worker. And I get there and there's a massive line out the door and it's all standby workers. There were actually, uh, they said about 1,200 standby poll workers in New York Whoa. City. 1,200, I was one of them. And, uh, you know, it's a little unsettling just, you know, with the pandemic still going and everything. But they placed us in this building in Sunset Park. It's a, um, you know, Sunset Park being a neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, it's a board of elections building where they normally, like a huge warehouse, where they usually store all the election equipment. Um, so that was all moved out for the day because the election was happening, of course. And we were on this huge warehouse floor in kind of a warehouse type building uh, in Sunset Park, Brooklyn as standby workers. And I spent 11 hours hearing other people's names get called um, and uh, they eventually sent us home. And that was my day, uh, the somewhat short version of being a poll worker. Um, they told me, they told us at the end that usually in a in quote unquote normal election, they will have 400 standby workers in New York City and about half of them show up. So, you know, they, they recruit 400. So they have a supply of about 200. And that's based on their calculations of about 7% of toll, uh, poll workers overall not showing up. And this year, you know, just more engagement, more people. So the fact that they were dealing with 1200 standby workers sent out probably at least I'd say 900 of those and then still had hundreds such as myself to send home was, I would imagine, unprecedented in New York City election history. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely sounds, I mean, like, the enthusiasm to help out is great to see, and, um, you know, especially now in, in a pandemic, I know it's not fun being around potentially 1,200 people uh, like that, but knowing that normally poll workers, I feel like, are, are retired folks and elderly folks who most likely should not be out and about in a pandemic right now. So seeing that many people step up or try to step up um, is really heartening and, and uh, hopefully exciting for the future of civics here in Brooklyn and New York City at large. But uh, to segue into that or out of that and, and into your story from this week, Ben, um, one of the greater minor league initiatives of the year. And, and you know, obviously, given everything that's happening in the country, one of the greater initiatives anywhere uh, sports wise of the year has been uh organizations, you know, sporting organizations, we've seen this a lot in the NBA, some MLB teams have done this as well, opening up their doors, becoming a, an early polling site. And that extended to the minor leagues with Tulsa, who opened up One Oak Field, uh, the home of the Drillers, to early voting there in Oklahoma. Uh, it seemed to go really well. It seemed like a really successful initiative. What can you tell us about the background of what they did at One Oak Field this, this past week? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like you said, um, you know, sporting venues are becoming more and more utilized as poll sites. And I think that, you know, really started with the NBA uh, players demanding that, uh, that all of their uh, home facilities be used as poll sites, which I just think is great. Um, and, you know, as that was all happening in the culture, I was kind of, I kept poking around saying, hey, are any minor league teams doing this? It just seems like just something we should see more of, um, you know, for these uh, community assets to be used in a way that is very befitting of a community asset. And I did a story a couple or last month about Greenville Drive, uh, who tried to, but I guess uh, the the county didn't think they had, uh, you know, gotten in touch in time and just didn't think logistically it would work out. So you know, Greenville pivoted and and hosted a, a day of action instead with a lot of uh, civic-minded events. And so I thought that no one in, in minor league baseball was doing it, and then I caught wind of the Drillers uh, doing it, and uh, they had three days of early voting, um, One Oak Field is, um, you know, as an aside, it's in uh, Tulsa's Greenwood district, um, you know, which is a long history that we can't fully get into right now. Um, but that was the quote unquote Black Wall Street of the early 20th century that was then, you know, decimated by truly one of the most horrific in, uh, moments in American history, the Tulsa race riots. Um, so it's a little weird just squaring family-friendly minor league baseball in general uh, with that location of, uh, you know, such history um, and uh, in the city of Tulsa. But I do think, you know, that made it, I didn't go into that aspect of my story too much, but I think that I, I like that aspect even better that in a place of such history and often such a, a, you know, a brutal history in a lot of ways is now being used for civic engagement to, you know, perhaps change the course of the country, or at the very least for uh, everyone in Tulsa County to have their voices heard. It was the only 
uh, early voting site in all of Tulsa County, which is the second largest county in all of Oklahoma. They had uh, approximately 13,000 voters there over a three-day period. And especially in this era of social distancing, you know, a modern minor league ballpark, One Oak Field opened in, I believe, 2011, I want to say. Um, it was a great place for voting and the long lines that come with an engaged electorate um, because they could utilize the entire um, concourse as uh, you know, a place for people to line up and queue up, which they did. And also I thought kind of interestingly and just kind of a fun thing to imagine if you know minor league ballparks, they actually took out their concession you know, registers, the point of sale for their concession stands uh, on the concourse. And then the board of elections came in and set up their, um, their, their uh, computers in the concession stand. So voters, once they got through the line, went to a concession stand and got their ballots, You know, gave their name and their information and got their ballots from the concession stands and then went to vote um, at a booth on the concourse. And by all accounts, it went really smoothly. They had, um, you know, as I said, over 13,000 uh, total votes, um, which was nearly 10% of all the early votes cast in all of Oklahoma. And, um, you know, I write these stories just to do my small part in, you know, just advancing the idea. I just think we should see many more minor league ballparks being used as early voting and just, you know, flat out voting sites uh, for the communities in which they operate. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I would just want to um, reemphasize what Ben said about looking up Black Wall Street. If you get a chance, look up that part of the history. It wasn't something that was taught to me growing up. I didn't know much about it until recent years. Um, I'm sure the people of Tulsa know a lot about it, but for anybody at home who doesn't know the history of that area and the role it plays in American history and, and um, you know the, the role it plays in the bad sides of our history, certainly in, in racism and um, and that, things of the like, definitely look that up and, and you know, educate yourself on, on something like that. Um, but Ben, you, you talked about getting things going and, and how they were able to, to make this. I think you have a quote in here saying it was pretty turnkey. You talked about the concession stuff, but in terms of coordinating with the local election boards, it, it, you can't just throw your doors open and say like, hey, come vote here. We've got some ballots. There's a lot that needs to go into this. How far back did they start this planning and um, you know, how much did they actually have to do with the election board to, to get One Oak Field ready for early voting there in Tulsa? Well, you know, the, the word turnkey, which is in my story, and you just used, you know, means an event. Uh, you hear minor league baseball, uh, you know, executives use it a lot, meaning an event that can basically slot into the ex existing space uh, with a minimum of effort. Um, so it was a, a turnkey event. As I said, they basically had room on the concourse to do what they needed to do and, uh, you know, put their you know, computers and, uh, and uh, you know, other equipment that they needed as election workers in the concession stands. And, you know, one thing I found really interesting about this is, you know, well, the Dodgers or the drillers are the AA affiliate of the Dodgers. The Dodgers announced that they would be a polling site. Um, you know, that was kind of through LeBron James organization, a partnership with more than a vote. And uh, the, the drillers community relations manager, this is probably at some point in uh, later in August, maybe early September says, hey, you know, there were affiliated with the Dodgers. The Dodgers are being a polling site. Why can't we do it? Uh, the GM was, uh, this is Taylor Lavesi, um, the team's community relations manager. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. Um, and he just cold calls the election board and says, hey, would you be interested in doing your early voting here? And the elections board is like, yeah, that'd be great. You know, it's way better than a libra uh, library, <laughs> you know, just space-wise, uh, logistically. So they came out, checked it out, developed a plan and just did it. And uh, I guess in a way, it makes me a little more disappointed that more teams didn't do it. I know, uh, you know, the bureaucratic maneuvering certainly varies from county to county and state to state, but this was really just hearing about a parent club's initiative and saying, why don't we do it too? And it happened. Um, so I, in this case, it was pretty easy, again, pretty turnkey and uh, something I really want to promote uh, as something that can be done in the future. Yeah. And in terms of other benefits, because I'm not entirely sure how this works, uh, at election stations, Ben, I'm, I know you're not necessarily an expert on this, and especially since it changes county well, by county and, sta and state by state. But like, can you sell concessions there? Can you sell gear? Like, can you have the team shop open if it's away from the the polling booths? Like, there there are other benefits here than just being a pillar of your community. Yeah. Yeah, there are. There are some business uh, aspects. And, you know, as I said, the actual concession stands were used for the voting process, but the team did, you know, um, I think at the entrance, people were entering on the first base side. 
they did set up a concession stand. You know, it was really rainy and cold the first day on Thursday. You know, so I think they sold a lot of like hot coffee or hot chocolate and coffee. Um, they had a merchandise tent, tent as well, which, you know, sold a lot of umbrellas, you know, uh, for that first day that was rainy, uh, maybe some more sunglasses on the other days. Um, so they had some small tents set up on the exterior of the facility is my understanding. Uh, so they were able to, yes, generate some revenue uh, via being a polling site. And also this again was drawing from the entirety of Tulsa County, uh, which as I mentioned, I don't know the exact population, but the second largest county in all of Oklahoma. Oklahoma. So, um, that drew a lot of people, 13,000 people, and a lot of them, you know, had just never thought to come to a game. So it also, I'm sure, put in a lot of people's minds, like, oh, what, this is here. We come here to vote. Maybe we want to check this out when it's actually hosting a minor league baseball game or any other type of event that the team is hosting. So I, mean, I think it's just by existing as a polling site, it is functioning as a form of PR just for the team and its presence and what the stadium actually is, as opposed to what fans might imagine it to be if they're not really front of mind minor league baseball fans. And yes, there are, I think, some small, uh, you know, concessions and merchandise opportunities on top of that as well. And, uh, you know, so win-win in that regard, in, in addition to, I think, the main thing of just, you know, as a community asset, make, making sure you're making your facility available for such things that really benefit the community. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to ask that question by way of saying like, isn't there money to be made from this? Like the, the most important aspect of this definitely is getting people to vote, getting people to vote safely and, um, you know, bringing them to a big space that allows many people to vote at the same time. Because as you mentioned, Ben, Tulsa County is a big population. Just looked it up while you were talking The the last census update or um, estimate was 650,000 people in Tulsa there County. You so you need big spaces like one Oakfield. Um, ben, Thanks so much for joining us this week. I know you're taking some time off, so we appreciate it. Before I let you go, I just want to wish you happy early birthday. It is your birthday on Friday, correct? Correct, yes. All right. Well, everybody at home, you know, tweet at Ben, at Ben's Biz on Friday. If you missed it, if you're listening to this over the weekend, happy belated birthday works just as well. Um, but happy, happy birthday, Ben. We'll catch you soon. Hey, thanks, Sam. I appreciate that. And yes. Happy birthday to me and happy birthday to everyone born on November 6, 1978. It's great, to, it's great to be a, oh wait, I just said 19. I, I didn't mean to give away my age. I didn't mean to do that. Anyway, I'm a Scorpio. I'm a Scorpio. Thanks, man. I mean, Sam, just Sam. Well, say goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show. But before we do, Sam has our nationwide prospect fact of the week. Yeah, so we had uh, a discussion earlier about the Gold Glove winners and, and the two highlights for us as prospect writers and guys who we most recently just covered. Uh, the highlights were Evan White winning at first base in the AL and Luis Robert winning in the center field position in the AL as well. Um, Tyler mentioned this before, but just to, to reiterate it, Luis Robert is the first White Sox rookie since Tommy Agee in 1966 to win a gold glove. So that's pretty cool for him. Evan White uh, in the Mariners organization. That's a little more recent 2001. I would love to play the trivia game, but I'll just give you the answer. It's Ichiro. Ichiro was the last Mariners rookie uh, to win a gold glove award, but Evan White does get a first in his own right in that he is the first rookie first baseman to ever win a gold glove award, which is pretty exciting. And, and again, living up to expectations, we set the bar incredibly high for him about what he could do defensively in the major leagues. And yes, he had his struggles offensively this year, but I think if even he was league average, he would have been a rookie of the year candidate. He can still grow into that. We'll see what's to come from him, but the Mariners obviously think highly of him. They gave him an MLB deal before the season. Uh, and here he is already bringing hardware back to Seattle. And with that, we will say goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show. Uh, before we do, we gave you an impassioned plea to vote last week on the episode. And obviously, we can take full credit for what seems like the largest turnout in American history for an election. So good work, everyone. We did it. We uh, did it. I was going to say, and by we, which I part mean, we, yeah, which we, part are we taking credit for? We turned out like 140 million people, Sam. Oh, and just the just listenership of this show. Yes. Right. Turnout. I will right. take credit for turnout. Any yeah. other results, don't blame it on me. Or yeah, no, it's just uh, the the populace. We don't if one way or another. We didn't we didn't influence a result. We just got one hundred and forty million people. To yes. Me and you to it. fill out ballots. Absolutely. Putting it on my resume as we speak. Surprisingly, 
Kanye didn't win. Oh, man, I really wish I had a, a oh, you know what? The one that's sitting there was, I guess he's now an election dropout and not just a college dropout. Uh, uh, that's good. He also deleted his tweet last night, which I thought was hilarious, where he just said, Welp, Kanye 2024. He deleted it. A little bummed about that. Welp as an inclusion in a tweet is always entertaining. Yes. And as somebody pointed out, uh, well, I hope political candidates going forward are taking notes from Kanye and how to concede an election. <laughs> Well, well, guess I'm not going to win this one. Oh, man. Um, we got a lot more stuff coming to the site. Our uh, state of the system stories are continuing. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. I believe tomorrow, uh, my story on the New York Metropolitans will be out. Um, Andrew Batterano had one on the Colorado Rockies earlier this week. Uh, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim are coming up um, as well. And uh, a lot of good stuff on the site right now. So go check out MILB.com. Uh, until next week, he's Sam. I'm Tyler. I'll talk to you then.